Welcome to the Wellsteading Podcast. This is episode 312. Today is May 5th, 2020. I'm your host, John Pugliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at investablewealth.com. Well, today we're going to do something a little different. Get to that in a minute. I do just want to give you a quick update as far as market conditions go. You know, one day's up, one day's down. It seems to me that we're trading in a fairly tight range-bound pattern. The upper limit is the convergence of the 100 and 200-day moving average. That's right around 3,000, you know, more or less on the S&P 500. That's currently acting as resistance. So far, the market hasn't been able to break out above that. And then for now, the S&P is holding above its 50-day moving average. And that's in spite of having about, you know, three days of pullbacks. It still has managed to stay above that 50-day moving average. And then, of course, it's up pretty substantially today. Now, of course, all that can change tomorrow because volatility is extremely high. The VIX um, got back up uh, nearly into the 40s. Right now, I think it's in the mid-30s. These are off-the-chart extreme numbers, literally unheard of until you know the past few months of the, of the coronavirus. Never did we get to these levels of VIX volatility before. So trying to predict the day-to-day movement of this market, I think, is a fool's errand. For right now, it is holding up above that 50-day moving average, which is, I think, right around, uh, I don't have my notes in front of me, but right around, call it 2750, something like that. There's optimism that the economy is going to start opening back up, and of course, people's lives will get back to the way they were. Of course, the other side of that, the other argument from the from the bears is that well, the virus is just going to spread more and you know, we're seeing more escalation with rhetoric against China and perhaps some kind of sanctions or reparations or additional tariffs. Some kind of delinking of China in the U.S. is what uh, Trump has lately been talking about in, in terms of putting the blame and the spread of the Wuhan coronavirus on them. Listen, I don't know how all this is going to work out. I put a chart up yesterday over the S&P 500 where I think that we're in this range-bound trading pattern. I blogged a couple times last week. I know uh, Monday before last, I sold my Amazon position ahead of earnings. And several times now, I do believe that I have put up various charts of the S&P 500 talking about this kind of no man's land range bound pattern that we're in. And people are, are saying, you know, are we going to, are we going to break out? Or are we going to break down? I have no idea. All these people that tell you that they have algorithms and they're using Fibonacci numbers and, and all this stuff. Listen, it's numerology. Nobody can predict the future. I think this market right now is as likely to break out as it is to break down. No one knows. We've never been in this kind of a situation before. I think long term, it's all going to work out. And that's why I do remain in the stock market. And I continue to try and buy these dips and dollar cost dip into the market. I continue to see this pandemic that we're in as an opportunity not an existential threat to humanity or the economy. I think there are going to be companies and sectors of the economy that fail, but and we'll get into this in future episodes, but these are companies and sectors of the economy that we're going to fail anyways. How about in any case, I digress. Hey, today's episode is going to be a long rant and probably will make many of you mad. Uh, you may not even want to listen. Just go ahead and hit the unsubscribe button right now. Today's main topic which is the five dumbest listener questions. You would not believe the extent of stupid questions that I get from people. And I know I shouldn't say that, and I don't want to insult the listener audience. And, and frankly, I think a lot of the questions I receive that are really, really dumb are not from long-term, well-steading listeners. I'll give you an example, and this is not a listener question, but there isn't a day that goes by 
that some type of marketing firm, whether it be a publicist that's trying to get a guest on people's uh, podcasts or or some kind of marketing firm that's trying to advertise someone's product. There's not a day that goes by that I don't get an email from those kind of people somehow wanting to hawk their product or their guest on my podcast. And what's funny about this is that in the opening line of the emails that I receive, it'll say something like, you know, Dear John, or if they're even so stupid that they don't know who I am, that will just be like, Dear Podcast Host, we love the Wellsteading Podcast. And there'll be a couple sentences about what an amazing and fantastic podcast that I have. And of course, I know when they say that, they're lying right away. But then what really gets them is, is then they'll go on to say, and they just know that the guest that they have would be perfect for my audience to hear about and how great it would be for me to interview them. Or they're going to say that the product that they're trying to hustle, you know, some insurance policy or some other kind of goofy financial product that they want to spin and sell on my podcast, you know, they'll tell me how great it is for my listening audience when we all know that in 312 episodes of the Wellsteading podcast, number one, I've never had a guest and number two, I've never advertised a product. And so if these people had ever taken the time to even remotely research or listen to my podcast, they wouldn't be sending me these emails and they wouldn't be telling me how great, how much they enjoy my podcast. So I know this is just marketing scam and things that I get from people that are trying to, you know, market to podcasters, and I just delete and ignore all that. And so the questions I get from listeners are not that blatantly uh, obnoxious, but I do receive more than what I would consider my fair share of kind of dumb questions. So if you catch me on a bad day when my patients are wearing thin, well, I apologize. I can be short with you. I can get snippy. Okay, so the reason for this episode is not to poke fun at any of you that have asked these questions, but to simply use these questions hopefully as a teaching tool to point out why they're what I consider to be dumb and to help you think for yourself so you don't ask dumb questions in the future. Or or worse yet, so you don't make dumb investing decisions. Okay, so here we go. I'm going to do these in a countdown from the least dumbest to the most. Number five of the top five dumbest listener questions. It goes something like this. How do I save or get out of debt? Or sometimes that question will morph into how do I retire early? Now, the reason I say that this is a dumb question and the reason I don't do big episodes on how to get out of debt or how you can save. Now, don't get me wrong. If you go back and listen to earlier episodes and specifically if you focus on the 10 wealth building principles, I talk a lot about being debt free, but I don't talk about how to do it because it's kind of like talking about how to get into shape or how to lose weight. You know, there's, there's plenty of books about how to diet, but look at all the fat people that are around. Those books, that advice, it doesn't do any good. Getting out of debt is just like losing weight or getting into shape or any other type of self-improvement. It's all about you. It's about you having the discipline to make the hard choices and do the right things in your life. And you know what they are. You know how you get out of debt? You know how you save? You simply don't spend money. Oh, John, that's easy for you to say. Yeah, it is. Because I've been doing it for decades, decades and decades. I was raised by parents and grandparents that did the same thing. That's why I'm where I'm at today. Because I made the choice to live that kind of a lifestyle, to always earn more money than I spent, to live well within my means. I can't answer your question and solve your problem about why you have $50,000 in credit card debt or why you can't manage to save. And so when you come to me and you tell me you have a problem managing money, you know what I tell you? No, you don't. You have a problem managing yourself. Well, that shuts people up real quick. But you know what? It's the truth. 
It's not that you can't manage money. It's that you can't manage yourself. Now, I know I'm making a lot of people mad right now because you want to blame some other situation for the problems that you have. And that may be the case, but it still comes down to the bottom line. If you spend more than you earn, you're going to be in debt and you're not going to save. And listening to a podcast or asking somebody some question isn't going to change anything. And this not only goes to people that want to get out of debt, but this comes from the people that want to retire early, particularly the younger people, the millennials, the ones that are all about the, you know, hashtag fire, financial independence, retire early, whatever all that nonsense is. Listen, you hear me say, I'm 59 years old. I never plan to retire. My goal is to work as long as I possibly can doing what I enjoy and making money. Why would I want to retire? That's not what I'm about. I love my work and I love working with other people that love their work. So a lot of these people in the retire early crowd, you know, they'll come to me and ask me questions about uh, their plan to retire early. They want to retire in five years or seven years or something. And they tell me their financial situation. And you know what? They don't have any money. They may have a hundred or $200,000 or in some cases more money than that saved up. But when you sit down with them and say, okay, you have X saved up. But divide X by what your living expenses are. How do you possibly think that you're going to live the next 50 years of your life when you only have a few years of living expenses saved up? And then they come up with some nonsense about a side hustle or getting a you know 15% return on their money. And you know what? I wish them well. But I don't have time to answer those people's questions. I think they're foolhardy. Again, I spend my time working my business and working and enjoying my recreational time with other people that enjoy working their business. I think there's a lot of happiness and joy in work. And if you're working and you're saving your money and you're living within your budget, then it doesn't happen overnight, but gradually you'll start building your wealth. And then you won't have to worry about getting out of debt or paying off your student loans or your credit card debt or your boat or the house that you can't afford or all the other things that keep you enslaved. So there you have it. Don't ask me about how to get out of debt or how to save money because I'm going to tell you, you don't have a money management problem. You have a self-discipline problem. Now onto the next dumbest listener question. Here it is. Number four, how do I get started in X? And X could be, how do I get started investing? How do I get started in investing in the stock market or in Forex trading or in commodities or real estate or on and on and on? Uh, there's no stopping the amount of people that will send me an email about how they can get in started investing in something. And what amazes me to death is, you know, they'll start out with that first sentence or that first paragraph about how they love the podcast, how they've listened to every episode. And then they'll ask me how they get in started in Forex investing. Well, tell me in 312 episodes of this podcast, have you ever heard me describe to you about how I invest in Forex or how I invest in futures contracts? or how I buy penny stocks, or any of this other stuff that I don't invest in. And that not only do I not invest in, but I probably don't invest in it for a particular reason in that I don't think it works, or certainly it hasn't worked for me. So why would you ask me those questions? I don't know. I'm, I'm dumbfounded by it. I think it's a dumb question. And what's even dumber is, is when I engage these people and I say, well, well tell me, why do you want to invest in the futures market? And they'll tell me, you know, they read an article or they saw a YouTube video or their brother-in-law or their neighbor or whatever, right? They've heard about how you can make all kinds of money in X. X is 
real estate, flipping houses or renting out properties or doing Airbnb or investing in pork bellies or trading in Iraqi dinar currencies. I mean, just whatever it is, they, they come up with this stuff and I'm like, well, have you ever done that? No. Do you have any corollary knowledge that you think may help you be successful in that? Well, no. Have you ever made money investing in anything else before? No. I ask these questions. They have no plan as to why they think investing in that way would make them any money other than, you know, they, they heard a podcast about it or something. Uh, and then they generally don't have much money to put into, into it to begin with. And they have no experience in any type of, of trading or in that area of investing or for that matter, no trading or investing other than, you know, maybe they have an account over at Robinhood and they, and they made 500 bucks once. I just think that it's very dumb for those of you that think that you can run out and make some kind of an investment and immediately start making money with no experience and very little knowledge and you think you can make money overnight. I, I just don't think it's very wise. And I'm not going to encourage you in that pursuit. And that takes us to the third dumbest question, which is how do I beat the market? Or something, in some cases, people ask me, how do I beat the market? You know what? I generally don't beat the market. And you're not going to either. Neither does Warren Buffett. And there's a reason for this. Particularly if you're an investor like myself that's not only a long-term investor, but someone that's a prudent investor and doesn't take a lot of unnecessary risks. If you're that type of an investor, you're rarely going to beat the market because you're hedging your positions. You're not putting all your eggs in one basket. It's like life insurance, and I've explained this before, and people just don't seem to get the, the analogy here. If you buy term life insurance, you're buying that in, in a very wise manner to protect your dependents that rely on your income. And every year when you go out and you pay your term life insurance premium, that's that much less money that you have. So, so you can think of this in terms of your performance of the market. If you're buying term life insurance, then you have less income, less disposable income than people that don't. And so it may appear that those other people are, quote, beating the market because they're not wasting their money on term life insurance. Because that money that you're spending on your life insurance policy is money that you can't invest in the stock market. It's money that you can't use to go out and buy a boat or it's, you know, disposable income that you can't use to take a big vacation. And so the guy that doesn't have term life insurance, he looks like he's beating the market because he has more disposable income than you. And he may always have that advantage over you as long as he doesn't die. And most people don't. And so that's why you can kind of play those odds. But the reason that you're prudent and the reason that you do pay your term life insurance policy is that you know that that you know, 5% chance or whatever it is that you're going to die early. You know that if you do die early, you're protecting your loved ones. You're protecting your dependents that rely on your income. And so you're willing to hedge your position to, in effect, diversify your income to protect your family in the event that you die. And that's what we do with our portfolios. We do similar things. We do broad diversification. We move in and out of the market. We don't put all of our eggs in one basket. We don't invest in only one growth sector. We don't swing at the fences trying to hit a home run every time. We're trying to get good, solid base hits. And over time, if you do that, you're not going to consistently beat the market in any given year. In fact, you're probably going to underperform the market by a percent or two. 
And in some cases, by big percents, if you take some precautions that don't work out that year. But here's the deal. As long as you're consistently making those base hits and you're a diligent saver and you're adding to your savings, then your money's growing. It's worth more in the future than it is today. And then every now and then, maybe every five to 10 years, you get in a situation where the market takes a big plunge. And because you've taken some defensive positions, you have the ability to capitalize on that. And when everyone else is fearful, you become greedy and cash is king and you put your money to work. And over the next 12 to 24 months, you not only beat the market, but you drastically outperform the market. And you're not doing it with a few thousand dollars or some small investment. You're doing it with a major chunk of your portfolio. And since you've been saving and investing for a long time, that becomes a very large amount. And so the gain that you make over the next 12 to 24 months is exponential. And it puts you up to a whole other league in your net worth. That's what matters. It doesn't matter that you beat the market consistently day to day or year to year. It's that you're constantly making base hits. You're staying in the game and you're trying to position yourself for when that home run is hit that you've got bases loaded. And so that's why I think the people that go out and try and beat the market on a consistent basis is just a, a dumb, naive deal. And when those people ask me questions and I, I dig into what they're talking about and what their risk tolerance is, what's even dumber in the whole thing is a lot of times they'll come out and they'll say that they don't want to take any risk or they don't want to lose any principle. I'm like, what? What, what, what rate of return do you want to get? 12, 15, 20%? And how much are you willing to lose in your principal? Oh, I don't want to lose any money. Yeah. Okay. You might uh, want to listen to this other podcast. Don't waste your time listening to mine. And speaking of listening to people, that takes us to the second dumbest question that I get, which is, did you see this or did you hear that? And, you know, this or that. It could be, did I hear what some investing luminary said or did I hear what a politician said or did I hear what some talking head on TV said or did I see this chart or, um, uh, you know, there's all these things that get hyped every now and then. We, we haven't heard it for a while, but the Hindenburg Omen. Every now and then, the Hindenburg Omen. It's a, a charting pattern. It'll come up in the news and I'll get, you know, lambasted with emails about, what do you think about the Hindenburg Omen? You know what? I don't think anything about it. I think it's nonsense. I think it's numerology. And in most cases, I don't care what some big investing luminary has said about something. And chances are, what that person has said, and this is media type people, what they've said is generally what they always say. And so someone will say, hey, John, did you hear what Peter Schiff said about gold? Or did you hear what Harry Dent said about demographics and how the market's going to crash? Or did you hear that Jim Rogers said that the U.S. debt's going to default? Uh, uh, David Stockman, too, he's another one that comes to mind. He, he seems to be pretty popular. Or people that are harping about one particular ideology or one type of, of school of economic thought. You know, did you hear about this? Well, yeah, I heard about it. I heard what they said yesterday. And you know what? Go do a YouTube search or better yet, do a Google search and go back to 2003 or 1998 or 1975, that same person, chances are, has been saying the same thing for 20 or 30 or more years. They are perma-whatever. If they're bullish, they're perma-bulls. If they're bearish, they're perma-bears. If they think that gold is going to go to $20,000 an ounce, they probably have been saying that for 35 years. 
don't write me and ask me about that and be all worried that their prediction is going to come true. Do a Google search on them and see how long they've been predicting what has never happened. Now, there's an old saying about The Economist that has predicted nine of the last two recessions. Think about that. Learn to think for yourself. And that takes me to the number one dumbest listener question that I receive. And this email question is almost always prefaced by someone saying how much they love Wellsteading. They've listened to every episode. They've gone back and listened to the first 10 episodes, you know, a hundred times, yada, yada, yada. And then they'll ask, how do I invest a thousand dollars? Or how do I invest $2,000 or some other, what I would consider small amount of money? Well, listen, if you've listened to 312 episodes of the Wellsteading Podcast, you know that I never talk about investing small sums of money. The key principles of building your wealth are you first have to learn to earn and then to save and then to invest. Everybody in the financial business, everybody on Wall Street, all the financial podcasters and bloggers and all these other self-proclaimed experts They all want to tell you, oh yeah, you can invest, just follow my method, follow my strategy. Just invest $5 a week, blah, blah, blah. I don't think that stuff works. I think it's all hokey nonsense. I think it's just a scheme to either get you as a listener or to get you to buy a product. I mean, think about Wall Street. They want everybody to be an investor simply so they can charge you some type of a form of fees or get access to your money. You're not an investor if you have $1,000. You're not an investor if you're putting away $100 a week. If you do those things, you're a saver. Put your money in a nice safe bank account or certificate of deposit or a money market mutual fund or some kind of a cash equivalent fund. Or if you feel compelled to invest with smaller sums of money, then just dollar cost average or buy the dips into a broad S&P 500 uh, ETF or mutual fund like SPY. If you're taking $100 or $1,000 or $3,000 and going out and trying to trade fluctuations in gold or oil or trying to catch the next IPO or whatever, you know what? You're headed to disaster. You're going to end up losing more money than what you started with. And if you listen to the Wellsteading podcast, you know that's what I've been preaching. Earn, save, and then invest. And so the big question is, when do you move from being a saver to being an investor? Well, I don't know that exact number, but again, certainly if you have $5,000 or $10,000 or $100, you're not an investor, you're a saver. I think the real turning point in becoming an investor is when you have, oh, let's say at least a year of good solid earnings saved up. Then you can kind of start putting yourself in the position of being an investor and start worrying about it. And the reason for that is just think about it. If you have $10,000 and you make a 10% rate of return on that money, you made $1,000. Well, what good is $1,000 in the scheme of things if your cost of living is dollars $100,000, $200,000 a year? What good's $1,000? You may feel good about earning it. You may get an adrenaline rush from studying the markets and doing trading, but you're wasting time. You should be spending time thinking about how can you earn more money in your job and how can you save more of that money. And then once you've built up like maybe a year's worth of earnings, you're not investing a thousand or two thousand or ten or twenty thousand dollars. Then you're investing maybe fifty, a hundred, two hundred thousand dollars. And that's where the real gains come in. 
Because once the money that you have available to invest starts to equal a year or two years or more of your earnings capacity, then the return on those earnings become really significant. So significant, in fact, that your money becomes a slave working for you. And so when you're saving 5, 10, 15, 20% of your income, and you're taking that out of your paycheck because you're a disciplined saver, and you're putting that into your savings and into your retirement account, and then that money starts to snowball, and your savings war chest, which is now maybe $100,000, $300,000, once that starts earning 5, 10, 15%, now you're talking about real money. Now it's serious. You're not fooling around with earning $100 or $200. You're earning amounts of income that are equal to or more than the amount of money you're saving from your own paycheck. That's the position that you want to be in, but you don't get there trying to worry and invest $500 or $1,000. You get there by developing your talents and abilities so that you can be an above-average income earner, and then you don't conform to the consumer economy and be like everyone else and spend all your money you save a high proportion of it. And then after years of saving and discipline and knowledge, then you become an investor. It's a long, slow process. It may take you seven years. It may take you two decades. But I firmly believe that that's the path to sustainable financial independence and that ultimately it's a very easy path to follow once you put yourself in that disciplined position. Now, it's not glamorous. It's not new. It's not going to get you rich quick overnight, but it does work. And it's what I preach and evangelize here in the Wealthsteading Podcast. And so, hey, as always, thanks for listening. Until the next episode, this is John Pagliano wishing you the very best returns.